Hello, this is Duran Orenstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a really special treat. We've got saxophonist Rick Margitza on the line. And just to introduce him, for those of you who might not be as familiar, starting on the violin at age four, continuing on to classical piano and then oboe before finally settling on the saxophone, Rick Margitza's diverse musical beginnings couldn't be more evident in his body of work to date. Taking on classical studies with Donald Sinta and jazz with Sonny Stitt, Jerry Nywood, Michael Brecker, and David Lehman, Rick made a point of surrounding himself with some of jazz music's most masterful saxophonists. After completing formal studies at Wayne State University, Berklee College of Music, University of Miami, and Loyola University, New Orleans, Rick found himself touring with legends such as Maynard Ferguson and Flora Purim. Cementing his position as one of jazz music's most respected saxophonists was his stint with Miles Davis starting in 1989. In addition to his time with Miles, Rick has gone on to play with jazz's most celebrated A-listers, including McCoy Tyner, Bobby Hutcherson, Tony Williams, Eddie Gomez, Chick Corea, Maria Schneider, Dave Douglas, and many more. Rick has also composed music for orchestra, including two symphonies and a saxophone concerto. With more than 10 solo albums to his name, including three albums for jazz's most prestigious label, Blue Note Records, Rick Margitza stands out as one of jazz music's most distinctive voices on the saxophone. So with that, Rick, welcome to the best saxophone podcast ever. Hey, Jaron. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So can you tell us just a little bit about how you got started in music? Well, uh, I was lucky enough to come from a really musical family, so it was just kind of something that was around me as I was growing up. Um, my father was a classical violinist. He played a violin in the Detroit Symphony. Uh, his father is a Hungarian gypsy, like a folk violinist. Um, and my mother's father, my other grandfather, was a jazz bassist. He played bass with Glenn Miller. Uh, and then he also played cello on uh, the Charlie Parker with Strings albums. Uh, so I grew up hearing jazz, classical, folk music, um, and also being from Detroit, when Motown first started, uh, they used violinists and strings from the orchestra. So my father was one of, uh, kind of one of those, you know, one of the guys they used. So I also heard a lot of, like, you know, great Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, uh, all the Motown music. So basically I had all these different types of music in my house, and it was just there all the time. You know, all my relatives play, uncles, cousins, so... Um, it was a great way to grow up because there were no labels attached to it. It was just, you know, music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, my grandfather started teaching me how to play the violin when I was young. And then uh, once I got more interested in music, um, formally I started studying classical piano. Um, you know, like you were saying in my, in, in my background, in my bio. And then I heard a Charlie Parker record once, <laughs> one day. Uh, and I... I basically said that's what I want to do. There's something about it that kind of spoke to me. 
so I got a saxophone at school the next day and just started you know playing along with records. Um, kind of learned to play that way first, and then started taking you know more formal lessons and learning about theory and harmony and all that stuff after the fact. But I think I learned to play by ear at first, playing along with records and imitating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what was the turning, was the point, turning point that made that you decide, made you decide oh, this is you know, what this I want to do, do for a living? You know, I don't think there was ever a, uh, a decision involved. I mean, it was it was kind of um, not assumed by my family. It was just, like I said, it was so natural to me, and I loved it so much. And um, I never thought, you know, of course, at one point when I was a teenager, teenager, I thought I would like to be a baseball player, you know, or something, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something like that. But really, there wasn't, like, a choice between that and something else. And, you know, I was lucky enough to... to be surrounded by really good teachers, and I went to good schools, so I made some connections just in the local scene when I first went to school in Detroit. So I started working and, you know, um, kind of just took on a life of its own. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have never had to, you know, go through that thing of what do I want to, what do I want to do with my life. I mean, it was just, um, you know, I, I feel lucky that I'm able to, to do something that, that I love doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a common experience with a lot of the great, lot of the great musicians. musicians. Just, just something that something happens, that happens naturally, naturally is an outgrowth of the, the enthusiasm, enthusiasm that you have for music. Have for music. Exactly. Very cool. Very cool. So, so you have such a have strong to, background of classical music, you know, with your uh, father in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and your whole family. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this deep involvement you have with classical music has affected your jazz playing and composition? Uh, well, I guess it started studying classical piano, so I just had this foundation of you know knowledge of the, of the keyboard. So that kind of, in general, helps composing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that's that's the first part of it, and. You know, once it was around junior high school, so I was in seventh grade, I guess, um, is when I started getting interested in jazz. I kind of got away from it and then came back to it um, maybe when I went into to college. And um, I'm trying to think of, I mean, throughout the whole time, it's not really really true. Throughout the whole time, I, I was aware of it, but I wasn't, I was, you know, you, you spent a lot of time trying to get together just your basic jazz stuff, so at some point I did kind of get away from it, but I was never totally away from it. Um, and then I kind of rediscovered it just, I guess when I went to college, um, started, you know, all the guys, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, Ravel, Debussy, Bartok, um, just a lot of listening. It wasn't even that much really studying the scores as much, but it was just, just at first just listening. And then I got more interested in, I got really interested in Mahler and his symphonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, I kind of started taking them apart a little bit. I would, you know, in my sequencer, I would just take passages and play all the parts in one by one. So that kind of helped me see how things are constructed and linked, you know, orchestration-wise. Um, uh, I guess in, in terms of how it influenced my, my composition is you start thinking about forms differently. Um, instead of thinking about 
you know, just the melody and the solos and the melody out, and just, you know, writing. Of course, I, I did a lot of that just writing tunes, like lead sheet tunes. Mm -hmm. Things just to improvise over, just little easy kind of things. Um, but in terms of studying classical music, that I started writing things that had different forms, uh, longer sections, transitions, um, you know, different solo sections for different different people, um, introductions, different kind of codas, things like that. So, I'm obviously I'm, I'm all, not obviously, but I'm also really influenced in by the music of Pat Metheny. And when you listen to Pat's music, he does a lot of those kind of longer, extended kind of forms where they're, you know, multi-sectional kind of thing. So I would say that classical music influenced by writing in terms of form more than anything. Um, mm -hmm. Then also by looking, you know, just looking at how certain composers deal with counterpoint. When I started writing things for two or three voices in my, in my, you know, some of my, my, some of my tunes, I, I might have a counter melody. So, just studying counterpoint helped develop that that aspect of the music. Yeah, I noticed um, on your albums you do a lot of saxophone overdubbing, kind of giving it a real contrapuntal sound. Mm -hmm. So are you able to bring that live? Have you been able to bring any of uh, those arrangements to the live stage? Uh, that's that's a little tricky today because it's, you know, it, it's, you know, a lot of things comes down to ec economics. So it's hard enough sometimes just to get a quartet on the road. So to go out with five people or six people, yeah, ideally I would like to go out with a, a, a sextet or a septet, you know, um, so every once in a while there'll be a situation where I'm able to, you know, afford hiring other people, and if, if that's the case, then yes, I'll bring out some of this music where I have, you know, a second voice. Mm -hmm. or, you know, but uh, unfortunately, it's it's a little frustrating. I can't do that all, all the time. So um, I, I try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can be challenging, for sure. So. Would you recommend that all sax players take some time to study classical saxophone, or do you think it's enough to just immerse yourself in jazz? Uh, no, I would suggest some type of classical study just for the control of the instrument, mm -hmm. um, for breathing, for you know, for the altissimo, for for you know, controlling the flexibility of your throat, for all the over overtone stuff. I mean, I think it's really important to have that kind of foundation. Um, because when you're improvising, you want to be as free as possible on the instrument, so you don't want to be kind of hindered by your ability to execute things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and especially today, I mean, the, the the range of the saxophone, the technical range has been so extended that there are certain things you can't kind of ignore anymore. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like a status quo for, for people who want to improvise in, in you know, uh, these times where you really have to be able to play the instrument fluidity, uh, you know, being, being completely fluid in the autismo register for sure. I mean, the range has been extended. So you can't really, um, like I said, ignore that anymore. You know? mm -hmm. Well, you know, again, speaking about classical music a bit, I, one thing that's really interesting about you is that you've actually composed two symphonies. So can you talk a little bit about how that project or those projects came about? Well, I, I did them a while ago. Of, 
I, you know, if I, if I would go back to them now, I'm sure I'd have to do a lot of editing and rewriting. <laughs> but I, I kind of started doing it when, uh, maybe when I was, let me see, I guess around the time I moved to New York, um, it was around 1989, 1990, I guess, is um, when I first bought a keyboard with a sequencer in it. Mm -hmm. and some decent orchestral, you know, orchestral sound. So uh, it kind of started with as just kind of uh, I didn't sit down and said I'm going to write a symphony. I kind of just started by improvising little sections, and it kind of it kind of grew into something after you know after some time. And uh, it wasn't until I think the second one I got more organized where I would actually. I mean, I think the first one, I kind of just started playing playing something, and that sounded like a section, and I thought, okay, what could come next? So it wasn't really like where you sit down with themes and you try to plan something out. and, and, and So it wasn't as organized as I would like it to have been, but it kind of just came out because um, it was kind of fresh at the time. So I think the, the more and more I write, the harder it gets because you realize that you can't just be going on, you know, complete instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of a, a combination of Mahler and Aaron Copeland, uh, Prokofiev. You know, some of the guys I, I mentioned. It's not really like hyper contemporary. It's it's more tonal. They're more tonal. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I've never heard them live. I mean, I've just heard them in my you know the way I've created them on the computer and, and sequencer. I would like to obviously at some point hear them live, but. Um, like I said, it's so hard sometimes to get a gig for a quartet the thought of trying to organize an orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I sit around waiting for the phone to ring. You know, like somebody's going to call me up and say, hey, hey, how would you like to have a player saxophone concerto? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they, they kind of like just grew as an extension of kind of my jazz language and my influence of the classical music and... Like I said, the the more I've recently been writing some, not like big pieces like symphonies, but like smaller movements that are like kind of, um, you know, they kind of stand by themselves. So like this, finished like a, a march, for example, that was like nine minutes or something like that. So it's not really part of a symphony or anything, but it, I guess it could be part of a suite, maybe. Mm -hmm. And the things I've been writing recently are, are are a little bit more mature because, like I said, the more I've studied and looked at how things are constructed, I've Taking more time to be organized about the forms and you know um, things like that, I guess. Mm -hmm. It it sounds like you make a lot of use of technology in your composition. Is that something you uh, do? You find ways to use technology uh, to improve your saxophone playing as well, in terms of uh, yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. Um, not really. You know, I. It's funny, I think I use the technology just because of my limited ability to play the piano. So I, I sometimes in my comp composing just set up sequences and loops um, uh, just to come up with ideas for, for tunes. But in terms of the saxophone, it's really kind of just still me practicing with a metronome. or I, I do use the Abersol tapes a lot still. Mm -hmm. The Abersol songs, but... Um, I really can't think of you know, a way that I use technology more for the saxophone. Um, 
I tried to play an Iwi once, and I couldn't even get out of C major scale. <laughs> so I, so I kind of let let that one go. Uh, I, every once in a while, I toy with the idea of getting some type of rip, um, you know, um, like a a rig where I can use a harmonizer or some effects on it on, on the on the tenor. Um, you know, process the sound some, but um, I haven't really pursued it that much. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, I recently had your former mentor, David Lehman, on the podcast, and I asked him the same question I'm going to ask you about Miles Davis, which is, what was your biggest takeaway from the experience of playing with Miles? Uh... It's hard to, to answer that with one thing. I mean, I I, I learned not to be so naive. And <laughs> was one of the main things I learned. I got out there and I thought it was going to be this really great creative um, like camaraderie amongst the people in the band. And it wasn't completely that. It was a little bit <clears throat> of a political kind of situation. So I wasn't as comfortable in terms of just just being accepted. Maybe it was because I came out at the last minute and, you know, it was this weird kind of, you know, circumstances. So, um, but musically, I think it's, it's really, <clears throat> uh, the thing I took away was, was the importance of, of leaving space. Um, I mean, I see there's a couple of videos floating around on YouTube and unfortunately it doesn't sound like I'm leaving any space at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it, I guess it took me a, time, a while to digest all of that. But just seeing Miles on stage and you know the, the, just his ability to, to play a phrase and just let it go and then leave some space before you come up, come up with the next thing. Uh, I mean, sometimes it would be his time to take a solo. And, of course, the music at that point was all vamps, so it's, it's a little easier to do than if you're playing over two of changes. But... It would be his solo, and he'd, be, he'd walk up, walk around on stage, and he'd pretend like he was going to play, and then he wouldn't play, and then he would seem like he was going to play, and he still wouldn't play. I mean, so he created this drama by not playing. So, so this drama of silence, <laughs> and uh, the idea that I mean, at that point, everybody was so everybody was just waiting, like, what is he going to come up with? What is he going to come in with? So when he finally would play, it was such a relief, you know, a release, relief. Um, so I guess that the, the, the how you can create so much tension and drama by not playing. Uh, so realizing that, um, you know, not playing so many eighth notes and just letting the music breathe and, and having enough composure to um, include the other people in the band that I play with also instead of it just being my solo over you know this rhythm section really kind of it kind of it feeling more like a group experience um, I guess if I had to say the main thing I learned was was that very cool yeah I mean it's pretty evident from miles Davis's playing that it's I don't know every time I hear a solo from miles it's a lesson in subtlety so yep. You know, speaking of melodic concepts and subtlety, I, I noticed that in your own playing, you don't really play the, statter, the standard melodic vocabulary that you hear jazz players playing, you know, coming out of the bebop or hard bop. You really have your own melodic approach. So I was wondering what you've done to really open up your, your own melodic concepts so that you're able to find uh, melodies that are so unique. Uh, that's a it's a big question to answer, but 
uh, it's I say a couple things. The first thing is you have to. Um, sorry, you there? Yes. Okay, I thought we hung up. Okay, um, <laughs> I'll start again. Um, so the first thing you really have to do is have a really thorough base and fundamental knowledge of bebop, mm-hmm. because everything is just a layer um, added on top of that. So when you listen even to 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 some of the later Coltrane, I still feel and hear the syntax of bebop. So it's you have to have that as kind of like a second nature. It's mm-hmm. like um, you know, it's like understanding I don't know the poetry of Walt Whitman before you can read James Joyce. Mm-hmm. You know, I maybe try to make that analogy. So I did a lot of transcribing and a lot of playing along with records just to get that. You know that fundamental knowledge and that that um, firm foundation. Uh, but then there also has to be this thing in the back of your mind. I was lucky enough to have a really uh, a great teacher in, in even in junior high school and in high school, and they always told me you have to sound like yourself. Don't play cliches. So it's a it's kind of a fun process because you have to learn all the cliches before you can't before you decide not to play them. So I kind of had to learn all that, like I said, all the bebop stuff, and then make a conscious decision not to use certain things anymore. Um, so yeah, so this basically this idea of trying to find your own language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny though; it's it's not like you can sit down. It's not like I sat down and said, "Okay, this is going to be my language." It's something that kind of just grew as a result of of, like I said, thinking about that thinking about the fact that I would like to sound like myself. Um, but, you know, the, 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 and just, I don't know how to say this, having enough patience to just let it happen. Because, you know, if you listen, if I listen to early tapes myself, I, I sound like Michael um, because I was spending so much time with him. Uh, so it's almost like you... Um, well, how do I say this? Michael told me that his his style was everything. He's like he took a little of this, a little of that, a little of that, and then it's just how he kind of put it together. So I feel a little bit of my playing is kind of like that. I took aspects of all these people that were big influences on me, and kind of just and saying what they said, but in a a little bit of a different way. Um, and of course, maybe my influence of, of the folk music and uh, the classical stuff also had a lot to do with it. Um, I mean, maybe more nuts and bolts kind of thing is I would purposely sit down with bebop ideas and look for ways to change change them. So that's uh, kind of hard to do without a piano or music paper to really kind of describe what you what I did. Um, um, Let me see if I could do this. Basically, well, not, not one of the things is <clears throat> looking, um, say one note, uh, say a C, right? Mm-hmm. A, C, a C could be a member of six different triads. Mm-hmm. So C is root of C, but it's also the third of A flat and the fifth of F. It's also the root of C minor, right? The third mm-hmm. of 
third of A minor and the fifth of F minor. Mm -hmm. yeah. So <clears throat> I might take, a, say, a Charlie Parker lick where it's a 2-5-1 and it's, say, E flat minor to A flat 7. So the A flat 7, the third is C, right? Mm -hmm. So using that C, I kind of think about it as a window into those six other different triads. So over A flat 7, you could maybe play a, uh, a minor triad or an F triad or an F minor triad. Oh. Uh, it makes more sense, like I said, if you hear it on the piano. But this idea of taking, like, bebop kind of licks, but taking certain notes and having them open up into different tonalities. That's, that's one of the things I do. Um, uh, definitely the, the whole Coltrane thing where, you know, the three tonic system, giant steps chord changes. Mm -hmm. I use a lot of that. Um, um, I took some things from Schoenberg, for example, a couple of 12-tone melodies that I found ways to use over two five ones. <laughs> <laughs> so that might be something that I kind of did you know, that I, I, I kind of, I'm not sure if I've heard anybody else do that, for example. Uh, but then the whole, whole thing about that is to not make everything sound like an ex exercise in some intellectual and still, still just play, you know. So I try to do a lot of thinking when I'm practicing and not too much thinking when I'm playing, but I, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't help it sometimes. So it's, 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 to me, the trick is blending the intellect with the emotion. Yeah, that's that's really cool stuff to get into for sax players because a lot of times, you know, we don't have naturally the same harmonic sense as a piano player, of course. So, so it's yeah, it's great to be able to stretch into these other areas, especially like what you're talking about, things that we that wouldn't necessarily come to mind when you're just playing a lead instrument, a lead a mm -hmm. single lead voice. So. Yeah. Very um, cool. Yeah, I'm sorry. Also, I think just being able to play the piano and you know, looking at, you know, when I'm kind of playing, I sometimes visualize a keyboard. So, you know, one thing that I kind of got from Bob Mincher is this idea of playing bigger chords. Um, you know, like like spreading out a triad instead of going C E G, you'll play C G and E on top. So you play you play the, the in the space of a tenth instead of a fifth. So I think this idea of, this idea of looking at a keyboard and visualizing it is a big help also in terms of just playing harmony mm -hmm. that, that helps or that, that has helped me yes yeah so you you see a bigger range of melody within the, a bigger range of harmony within to improvise exactly exactly very cool very cool so um Otherwise, you know, again, shifting gears a little bit, uh, I know you've been in Paris for the past seven, almost eight years after a pretty fruitful career playing here in the States. So yeah. how did you compare your experience as a musician in Paris to that of a musician in the U.S.? Well, one of my standard, standard lines I've been, I've been using since I've been here is smoke. In eight years, almost eight years, I haven't had to put on a tuxedo one time. <laughs> uh, I find in New York, even some of the best musicians, at times you have to put on a tuxedo and play club dates. And 
mm-hmm. you know, and kind of do music you don't want to do all the time, just to pay the rent and to make make ends meet. And um, I don't know. I, I just feel that in in Europe there seems to be more respect for artists in general, and culture is important to them. You know, almost every little town in France has some type of cultural center, a little little cultural center where they put on concerts. Uh, so, in general, I just feel that you get more respect as an artist. Um, you know, whenever you go to play somewhere here, someplace here in Europe, uh, there's always uh, a meal, and there's always a hotel, and they kind of take care of you. And we're in the States, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I just feel like I've been playing creative music much more consistently here. Uh, New York was a great place to to be just for the inspiration and for the energy and of course I still miss certain things about it but in terms of being able to make a living as an artist it's I don't, I don't want to say it's easier here um, maybe the fact that I had a little bit of a reputation before I came helped but uh, it certainly has been easier to like I say play creative music more consistently and uh, make more of a, a stable, solid living as a musician and a, as an artist than I was able to do in the States. And I, when I was in the States, I found myself coming over here quite quite a bit to play and to really make you know, a big part of my income. It wasn't all making money by playing creative music in, in New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I guess I'm taking advantage of the fact that there are these little festivals and cultural centers all, all around Europe and Paris is so central, it's really easy to travel in and out of, so, you know, I get calls to do, you know, be, become a, uh, you know, a, a featured guest with a rhythm section with some musicians in Germany, or I went to Italy and played with a trio there for a couple of nights, uh, I'm going to Budapest to play with a trumpet player next week, so there's all these little things where I, I get called to go as, you know, being a guest with other people, and it's easy to use Paris as a, as a center for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plus it's a beautiful city. <laughs> well, sure, I know. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, New York is great, too, and it's it's funny. It's like every place, I shouldn't say this for, for everybody, but for me, it's like you, you get used to a place, so sometimes I have to tell myself, you know, you're in Paris. It just, you know, it just kind of turns into a place where you live, and you don't really realize where you are. Uh, and I kind of felt like that about New York. Uh Whereas the people here who have never been to New York say they can't wait to go because it's such an amazing city, and you know, so it's uh, maybe common human nature for us to kind of get used to places where we are and take them for granted. But um, yeah, it is a pretty cool place to live. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah for sure. So, what would you say is the next musical frontier for Rick Margitza? What's what's next on the horizon that you'd really like to? get into with your career? Well, you know, it's been a while since I recorded uh, an album as a leader. I've done three records with this group called the Mouton Re- Reunion Quartet, which are these French twin brothers uh, who I've been playing with since I moved here, and I really enjoy playing with them. Uh, but I haven't really done a record of my own in a while, and I have a lot of new music that I've written. Uh, so I guess that would be my next thing, is just to try to, to get a, a new recording out. Uh, and the new music is kind of a continuation of what I've been doing. I would say it would be basic quartet with guitar, percussion, and maybe a voice. So, what is that, a septet? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I hate to compare it. It would be a little bit like Pat Metheny with saxophone. Uh, 
but maybe a little bit more intense improvisation. Uh, not that Pat's music is not intense, I don't mean that they come out that way, but um, yeah, so it's kind of hard to describe, but I guess that, and of course I would like to somehow try to find a way to get some of this classical music performed. Mm -hmm. At least the concerto. I think the symphonies are pretty young sounding. If I go back and hear them now, but concerto is a little bit more recent, so um, maybe try to find a way to get that performed would be something I'm interested in. And the concerto. Oh, go ahead. No, that that's it. So the, con <laughs> the concerto would obviously be you playing the sax part, correct? Yeah, uh, in a way though, I, I was sometimes. I sometimes think it would be cool just to be able to sit in the audience and not have to worry about me playing. Just just have somebody else playing it. <laughs> because there's no, there's no way we're improvising. It's all kind of written. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I guess I would play it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be very cool. So, do you have any parting words of advice for sax players who want to do what you do for a living? Uh. Well, for a living, that's that's a different thing. I mean, I I think you should you should only play music as a or, or choose music as a career if you have no choice. It uh, if you don't have any other choices, if like you can't envision yourself doing something else. I mean, I, I think you and I before we started this podcast, we were talking about the fact that you were interested in other things, so you decided to, to kind of pursue them. Mm-hmm. And for me, I would say, oh, don't obviously don't go into music for the money. Doing it, you go, <laughs> you go, you go into it just because you have this burning desire to express something, and it speaks so deeply to you that you really have no other choice. Um, otherwise, do it as a hobby. You you, would, and you you get a lot more enjoyment out of it than than, than doing it and struggling, uh, because it is a little bit of a struggle. So I I, I say it's a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing blessing to do something you love and it's a curse because there's a lot of traveling and it's not uh, steady income all the time and you have to pay a lot of dues so you know it's it's a trade-off and hopefully you'll get to the point where it becomes a little easier um, but it never really gets easy mm -hmm. but the the other side of the coin is you get so much enjoyment by uh, enjoyment out of playing and also by you know, doing something that inspires other people so um, that just kind of made it worth it for me. Mm-hmm. No, well, we're all very glad that you're doing what you do, so. <laughs> Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thanks. That's a good thing. So, okay, well, we're winding down right now. Or we're more or less done. So I always like to leave the podcast with a tune by... The artist I'm interviewing and today we're going to leave you guys with a tune that's an update of something that appeared on Rick's third uh, solo album for Blue Note. It's a tune called Gypsies. So um, it's a very cool tune so I think you'll all enjoy it. And uh, with that, um, Rick, I'm just going to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jerron. Good luck, and uh, hopefully you get a chance to see each other in person soon. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So, all right, uh, here we go with Gypsies.
Thank you.